Genesis chapter 1. We have spent a lot of time lately in Genesis 1 and in Revelation. We're in a series on suffering, uh, which is the question that gets chucked around so much in terms of faith and Christianity and life in general. Um, People ask why suffering occurs. Uh, It's probably the heaviest series we've ever done at table. We're on the third week of it, and it will run at least until Easter Sunday. If you have a Bible, can you please go to Genesis 1? If you have a phone with a Bible app on it, can you go to Genesis 1? And as you're doing that, can you put your phone in to do not disturb? You know that wee moon? Hit the wee moon so that Snapchat does not waste your brain cells in the next half hour with with garbage. But you will get so much more out of this if you can see it in front of you. Uh, So please do that. Genesis, I'm going to read chapter or a couple of verses of chapter 1 in a wee minute. I want to start off just by sharing with you uh, a dream. Not one of my dreams, but as I've been working and preparing on this this series, I came across a guy called Jerry Sitzer, who is a pastor and a professor in Spokane, Washington. That's Washington on the, the state of Washington on the West Coast. And he tells a story of how on a Sunday afternoon, he and his family were driving home from a ministry engagement that he had been participating in, and they were hit by a drunk driver. And in an instant, he lost three members of his family. Only, only he and his son survived the accident. The other three members that were in the car were killed instantly. And during that time of incredible suffering and grief that he was plunged into, he had a repeated dream. Over and over again, night after night, he had the same dream. Now to understand a wee bit of what's happening in his dream, we just need to check that you know something. Where does the sun rise? In the east, okay, (laughs) just you have to have that detail, and it sets in the west. But in this dream, Jerry Sitzer was on the beach, and every single time that he had the dream, he was running across the beach and he was chasing the sun, trying to catch the sun, trying to catch the light because he wanted to be in the light. And as he ran across the beach, every single time he did this, the sun would drop into the ocean set in the west on the horizon looked like the sun was going down into the ocean and he would fall down every time he had the dream he would fall down in a heap of tears on the beach because he couldn't catch the sun he wanted to be in the light and he tried so hard to be in the light but he couldn't catch it and then one night when he had the dream this had happened again he'd ran across the beach he had chased the sun the sun had disappeared down into the water and he was in a heap of tears on the beach wondering why he couldn't stay in the light and Jesus appeared to him on the beach in his dream and said to him Jerry get up face east you've been running west after the light and he said Jerry get up and face east And walk into the darkness, because that is where you will see the sun rising. Face east, walk into the darkness, because that is where you will see the sun rising. I want to talk this morning about facing the darkness. You see, we have an instinct to run away from darkness. Now, by darkness, I do not mean sin, and I do not mean evil. I, I, you, you, the Bible repeatedly tells us, run from those things. Just flee, get up and run. Like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, he just got up and ran. 
The Bible tells us to run from evil and sin, but that's not what I'm talking about. Our instinct is, is to run from difficulty. Whenever struggle presents itself, our human instinct is to get away from it and get out of there and run away. And that happens in the church a lot as well. We have an attitude to suffering that is, it's an inconvenience to us. We don't want it. We declare all sorts of things about it. And we try to run across the beach and chase the sun. And we end up in frustration a time and time again. And I think part of the, the reason for that is the lingering effect of something that I don't think has quite as much prominence as it used to, but a, an understanding of the Bible called the health and wealth gospel. And there are no words that I can use to actually express how much I hate, utterly despise the teaching that all Christians should be healthy and that they all <clears throat> should be wealthy. It is an utter fallacy. It is unbiblical. It is a lie and it wrecks lives. But it still lingers a lot in the contemporary church. This notion that everything should be well. We should be healthy. We should be wealthy. You look at the church and you will see the same idolatries in the church as you see in the culture. You will see an idolatry with youth and beauty. Vanity, appearance. You'll just see this, this huge emphasis towards young people. And you will also see uh, an idolatry of comfort. Having it easy. Having everything you want, everything you need, relaxing, nobody causing any discomfort to you. I was observing last week in a conversation that the, the obsession with youth in the church, and I don't get me wrong, obviously we love young people and obviously we're reaching out to them, but when the whole church is gauged around one generation of Christians, other generations then are left out. A lot of our worship songs are being written by people in their 20s and 30s. But they cannot write the songs that people in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s need to sing. Whenever we get so focused on health and wealth and youth and beauty and comfort, we find ourselves alienating huge, member, huge numbers of our membership and of our society who simply do not experience those things on a regular basis. And the church in the UK is in decline. The church in the United States is in an absolute nosedive. Yet the church in China is growing exponentially. Phenomenal growth among the church in China. And the church in China is persecuted. Greatly persecuted. But the growth is absolutely incredible. It is really the only move of church growth that is comparable to the early church in the first century in terms of the sheer movement there are pastors in China who are overseeing literally thousands of churches. The growth of the underground church is huge, but they're persecuted. They are in darkness and they are in pressure and they are seeing growth. Here we run after comfort and ease and we run away from the darkness because we don't want to face it. And the church is in decline. We run from suffering because our biblical understanding of suffering is very limited indeed, like a lot of things, frankly. We have a limited understanding and we run from it. We think, I don't like this, and because I don't like it, I conclude that that could not be God's will for me, and therefore I will run away from that thing. And what God's Word teaches us is that He made us in His image, 
But what we then do is we return the favor and we make him in our image. We basically say, this is how I want to be. So God, this is how you are going to be. This is the God I'm going to believe in. Whether he is the God who has revealed himself in scripture and in Jesus or not, does not matter. We decide what God's going to be like because we know what we want. And it's an absolute fallacy and a heresy. I want to show you this morning that in the darkness is where God does his most powerful work. You will see this over and over again in Scripture. The most powerful acts of God happen not in broad daylight, but in darkness. Even when Jesus was on the earth and he was healing people, frequently he would take them to one side away from the crowds. And he would touch them and he would heal them. God works in the dark and he works undercover frequently. In fact, the vast majority of the time. So let's read a few verses from Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <coughs> now the heaven and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now just listen to those last two phrases again. Do you see the, the parallel structure of them? This is Hebrew poetry. Darkness over the deep. The deep refers to the waters, the deep waters. Darkness was over the deep. The Spirit of God was over the waters. Do you see the similarity in the two phrases? Darkness over the deep, Spirit over the waters. What he's basically saying is that right there in the darkness is where you find God working. Where the darkness is so clear and so obvious for all to see, He is in that place and He is at work. And if we run away from the darkness... If we run away from the difficulties, we are running away from what God wants to do. We're like a, a person on an operating table just repeatedly getting up and running off away from what needs to happen. The psalmist in Psalm 130 verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And I can imagine God shouting back to him, I'm right there. That's where I dwell. The Spirit of God hovers over the depths in the darkness. And later in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, If I make my bed in the depths, if I go into the darkest places that appear to be furthest away from God, you are there. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. Even in those places where we feel like his presence is not with us, his, his word declares that he's there. The whole story of this book begins in the dark and God is right in the middle of it. He is not standing at a distance with some big powerful flashlight shining a light into the darkness. He is in the darkness himself. That is where he is to be found. We have this notion about God that he doesn't have anything to do with darkness. He's right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it, working in it. And in verse 2, where it says that the earth was formless and empty. It's a great phrase in Hebrew. It is tohu wavohu. It even sounds chaotic and messy. And God comes in and he hovers over it. The picture is one of an eagle or a dove. We have doves in the garden. Not nice, pretty white ones, but sort of bland looking gray ones with little black collars around their necks. But whenever they fly away, there's a, there's a beat to their wings. There's quite a noise off it. And, and the picture is of God, the Spirit, hovering over these deep, dark places and beating his wings 
and creating movement and creating change. He is the God who works in the dark. And it says in verse 5, a couple of things before we leave Genesis. In verse 5 it says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. In Genesis 1 and 2, a lot of things are named. And whenever God has finished his work of creation, he gives man humanity, male and female. He gives humanity dominion over the creation, over the birds, over the fish, over the animals. And one of the, way you see, one of the ways you see that is in Genesis chapter 2, when God brings all the animals to Adam, and Adam names the animals. That is a way of Adam declaring, I have dominion over these because I have named them. And on the first day of creation, when God separates light from darkness, he names the darkness. He names it. He says, you will be called night. And that is a way of God declaring, I own you. I rule you. I name the darkness and therefore I rule and have dominion over the darkness. The darkness does not scare God. He does not shy away from it. There are not places in this planet or in this life where God refuses to go. He works under the cover of darkness. And another thing in Genesis 1-5, if you've ever been confused sometimes with timing in the Bible, because we have this... We we think the day begins when the sun rises. That's the way we count our time. That Sunday morning began whenever the alarm went off and we woke up and the sun came up. That's when the day began. But in the Jewish and in God's way of timing things, look at what he says at the end of verse 5. He says there was evening and there was morning the first day. He goes at it the other way around. The day begins with evening and then runs through to morning. Darkness comes before the daylight. Evening, then morning is the first day. Evening, then morning is the second day. God's day begins in darkness. We count the day as beginning when the the sunlight comes up. God's timing and God's way of looking at things is when the darkness starts to fall, a new day is dawning. A new day is beginning. Darkness, night, morning, is the order of the day and God's timing. Think about, uh, if you can, think back to your time in the womb. Anybody remember any, any clear events from, you do? Was it when your mummy ate something good? No? <laughs> yeah. Was there much light in there? I can't imagine. I can't quite remember that much about it, but I don't think much light gets in there. In fact, zero light would penetrate in there. The womb itself, how our lives begin. Let me read from from Psalm 139 again, just a few verses. I'll be bouncing about everywhere this morning and I'll be annoying you and I don't care. Psalm 139, verse 13. It says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. 
The psalmist talks about that, those moments, those months in the womb were in complete darkness where no one can see it, no one can observe it, no one knows what's going on. There's an incredible work of development taking place, an incredible work of growth and design and progress, all in a place that is dark, restricted in terms of movement, pressured, a bit uncomfortable, no doubt. In the darkness is where God does his work. So when you think about, about birth and about the, the, the period, the gestation period in the womb before birth, it is a dark place where incredible work goes on. God has designed it that way. If you think in, in John chapter 12 about the seed, I don't know, you, you, some of you just, you've been desensitized to amazement. A seed is an incredible thing, like, their seeds will sit in the garage for months and years and do nothing. Go outside towards the, the autumn time, maybe towards the end of the year, and gather poppy seeds in the garden, bend over those big poppy heads and split them open, and thousands of seeds come out every one of them. These tiny, tiny little black dots. And then they can sit in the garage for months, years, and do nothing. But once you put them in under the ground... Put a bit of water on them. Put them in the dark place. Life comes. That is a miracle. That little tiny speck that looks no different than a speck of dust. But once it goes into the darkness, there's magic that happens. And life starts to develop from this thing that has been sitting lifeless and motionless for years. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. A seed sitting on its own achieves nothing. But when it goes into the darkness, something happens. Do you understand that God has written this into the very fabric of creation? Both our own lives, how we are developed, and in, in the whole plant kingdom, what goes on there. He's written it into creation that in the darkness is where the incredible things will happen. Our God is a God who acts in darkness. Think about, about the things that he does in the scripture. And I'm not going to go to each one of these. But in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles all night long with an angel. A man, the angel of God, squabbles with him. Jacob's a, a, a dealer. He's a con man. He, he grabs hold of him and says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the angel blesses him and gives him a new name. Changes his name from Jacob to Israel. That was a huge moment historically and it happened in darkness. In Exodus chapter 12, whenever the firstborn of the houses of Egypt was struck in the Passover, God moved through the towns at night, all under the cover of darkness. In Exodus 41, when God's people went through, or sorry, 14, when God's people went through the Red Sea, it all happened at night. All night long an east wind blew and the sea split and God's people moved through it. And during the last watch of the night, which is the darkest part of the night, the sea closes in over Pharaoh's army. And when daylight comes, all God's people see are bodies on the beach. All of his work done in darkness. Incredible. In Exodus 16, they, they go out in the morning and whenever the dew disappears off the grass, the manna is on the grass. Or on the desert floor as it would have been. Fell at night. 
God does his work in the darkness. In 2 Kings 19, Jerusalem is surrounded by 185,000 Assyrian troops who have besieged it, cut off the food supply, the water supply, and are ready to take the city. And one angel walks around during the night. And when Hezekiah goes out the next morning, when daylight comes and he goes and looks, he sees nothing but corpses all over the ground. One angel. And it all happened in the dark. God works in the darkness. Why do we run away from it? Why is our instinct when darkness falls on our lives, why is our instinct to rebuke it and chase it and run from it? When God may be working something deep within us in those moments, but we run away from it. The church itself birthed in darkness and act. Go to Acts chapter 16, please. And we dealt with, with some verses in this passage a few weeks ago, looking at the birth of the church in Philippi. Acts chapter 16. Are you getting the point? Where does God work? Ah. Sometimes there's lots of points, sometimes there's just one point. But I'll make sure you get it. In Acts 16, round about verses 11 to 15, Paul has met Lydia and a group of praying women at the river. And a, and a, a new thing has, has started. That would have been a nice place to set up church down by the river in the daytime with pleasant ladies like Lydia. That would have been a good place to see people saved, but that didn't happen there. And then in verse 16, you read about Paul and Silas going through the marketplace. That's a public place, and it's the middle of the day. They're encountered by a, a girl that's possessed with a demon. And you think, that would have been a good place for people to start getting saved and for, for, the, for a church to grow and develop, but it didn't happen there. They ended up going to prison. It says in verse 23, they were severely flogged. Now, if you think that was, you know, a few slaps, that was brutal. Severely flogged. They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, they were praying and singing. Do you think it was dark in there? It's, in the, it's just totally emphasized. They're in the inner cell. There's no natural light getting in there at all. It is utter darkness. And they are in agony. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid hearing about this story of Paul and Silas singing in the prison, I had visions of you know the acoustic coming out and kumbaya around the campfire and marshmallows and just everybody happy. They have been severely flogged. Their backs literally ripped open by the whip. Every movement, every time they took a deep breath to sing another word, agony, agony. They're in the darkness. They are in pain. They have taken stripes on their back and yet they're bringing a sacrifice of praise. And in that moment, people start to get saved. The Philippian jailer gets born again. He sees it. He sees that nobody has left. Whenever there's an earthquake and the, the doors of the prison open, nobody's gone. They're all still there. And he falls and he says, what must I do to be saved? I want to know this God 
who has caused this to happen. But it all happened in the darkness. It all happened in a place of pain. And you know what? Paul could have escaped that very easily. Very easily. All he had to do was say three words and he could have escaped. All he had to do was say, I'm a Roman. Because later on, whenever the next morning they're told a command is sent to the prison to release them. Verse 35, I think this is funny. I love Paul at this point. I just think he's class. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, just hold on a second. (laughs) They have beaten us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now you want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come down themselves and walk us out. I love it. Tongue in cheek. You were not allowed to beat a Roman citizen like that. The beating they received should not have come upon them by law. And I'm sure Silas at this point is thinking, Paul, why didn't you tell them yesterday? Why did we have to go through the whipping and the pain and the darkness? Why are you waiting now to tell them? But Paul knows that in the darkness and in the pain, that's where God works. So Paul willingly faces the darkness and he walks into it and he sees a miracle that otherwise he would not have seen. And if he'd have said the night before going into prison, if he'd have said, listen guys, hold on to your whips. I'm a Roman, you can't do this. Would we have a Philippian church? Would we have the letter to the Philippians? Possibly not. In the darkness is where God does his work. Paul knew he'd experienced it before. He was blind for three days after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knows that God works in the darkness. So he doesn't run from it. Now listen to me. What are you running from? What is it that instinctively you're thinking, I don't want this, I don't welcome it, and I'm going to run from it? And it's not an evil thing in that it is not, isn't it, we're not talking about sin. It is some struggle, some suffering, some pain. And you think, I don't want to do this. I don't want to stay in this dark place. It is uncomfortable. It is unpleasant. It could be physical suffering. It could be relationship. It could be a job. And it's getting tight and your instinct is Run. Chase the light, chase the sun. But Jesus would say, no, face east and run into the darkness. And that's where you'll see the sunrise. There's nothing biblical about running away from suffering. Nothing. And it's time the church, and particularly I would say the, the contemporary church, and by that I mean churches like ourselves, Churches that have been born and planted maybe within the last generation need to get themselves straight about suffering and stop running from it. There's nothing biblical about running away from the darkness. There is everything biblical about standing and facing the darkness to see the sunrise. 
The New Testament over and over again tells us to welcome suffering. First Peter, first chapter, tells us to welcome the suffering that comes our way. James 1 says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Romans 5 again talks about suffering and what it works in our lives and in our characters. But we want to run away from it and then we wonder why our characters never actually mature and develop. And why we don't want to see the move of God that, that we read about in the Bible. And please don't mix this up with 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to this carefully. It says, God is light. In Him there is no darkness. I want you to get this. In God there is no darkness. But in the darkness there is God. In God there is no darkness, but in the darkness there is God. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Always there. Let's go to, go to Jesus. Go to Mark chapter 15. We're nearly done. There's a wonderful verse in, uh, you go to Mark 15, but there's a wonderful verse in, in Luke chapter 9, which is the hinge verse of the whole gospel of Luke. It's a verse that just splits the gospel into two sections. And it's Luke 9, 51. And it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what lay ahead of him in Jerusalem. And he, you know, it, it in some more modern versions, such as the one I'm using, it says, you know, he, he resolutely determined, he decided, or he fixed his course. But in the older versions, and what it literally says is he set his face. He faced the darkness. I, you know, it's, as I read it, I, I, I picture him just stealing himself for what lay ahead of him and walking straight into it. I finished last week in Mark chapter 15, and, and I'll go there again this week. Mark chapter 15, last week we looked at the question, I'm going to look at it again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 34. Before we do that, look at verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus is on the cross. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is three o'clock. The ninth hour is when the evening sacrifice was made. The ninth hour is when one day was ending. The sun was beginning to fade. Darkness was setting in. And you know in God's timing that means a new day is beginning. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there's this supernatural darkness that covers the whole land as Jesus hangs in the cross and you hear people say, oh, that was the devil. That was the devil. The devil brought that darkness. And during those three hours, the devil was just having his way with Jesus. He was taunting him and he was doing all sorts of things to him. All the demons were all around him in the darkness. And they were having their way and they were chucking stuff at him and hurling abuse at him. And I, I do believe that it, as Jesus hung on that cross, the enemy took a shot at him big time. But I wonder the darkness. Did Satan bring the darkness? Or I wonder, was it God? I wonder, did God close the curtains and turn the lights out? And for those three hours, 
do a profound, deep work. Just like he had done at creation. Just like he does when a, a baby is in the womb. Just like he does when a seed is in the ground. Did he close the curtains and turn the lights out and go to work where nobody could see him? And do something incredible. Verse 34 Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's the first line of a psalm. Now, I'm going to play a wee bit of audience participation here to see if you'll get this. I'm going to give you the first line of a song and see if you can help me out with any more of it. The first line is this I got my first real six string. <laughs> now, what summer was it? Where did he buy it? The five and dime is where he bought it. How long did he play it for? Until his fingers bled. And he had a band with some guys from school, but what happened to Jimmy? Anybody remember what happened to Jimmy? No. What did Jimmy do? Jimmy quit. What did Jody do? Jody got married. Yeah, and when he looks back now, what does he say about that summer? It seemed to last forever. You see how one line of a song, without even giving you the title, you're showing your age. (laughs) One line of a song, and suddenly the whole song comes to you. Because you've listened to it that many times. And there's a good chance if you're of a certain age... You can remember listening to it in a car when you were a child. I remember sitting in my mum's car, parked outside Cordner's shoe shop and poured it down one day after school with a cassette, rewinding and just playing that song over and over and over again. I was about seven. See the power of music and the power of even one line? Whenever Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just referring to one line Every single person hearing that is going to start thinking of the entire psalm. The whole thing. All of Psalm 22. And I want you to go to Psalm 22. Because if you think I'm, I'm sort of stretching it that to suggest that people would know 150 psalms. And when they hear a phrase from one of them, they would then think of the whole thing. I don't think that's a stretch at all. And I think if you're, if you're any age, if you've been about any length of time and you put your mind to it, you could probably write down 150 songs that if you heard one line from them, you would immediately have memories flooding back and you would remember lots of other lines from the song. And that's what it was like for the Psalms. These are the songs of God's people. And when they hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They are then thinking, well, what's the rest of this about? And what is it about? Because it starts off the first two verses with, with a sorry, pitiful image of someone crying out to a God who does not answer. Darkness. Not hearing anything from him. And then in the middle of the psalm, it paints this picture of suffering that is all about the cross. In fact, it goes so far in, in verse 18 to say, They divide my garments among them and cast lots from my clothing. It says in verse 16, They've pierced my hands and my feet. You maybe have never thought about this, but this psalm was written before crucifixion was invented. You know, this is the power of the inspiration of God's word. This is at least four or five hundred years before the Romans invented crucifixion. 
He says, they pierced my hands and my feet. But the way the psalm ends is where I want to go because there's this great reversal. Jesus faces Jerusalem. He faces the darkness. He faces the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm about incredible suffering. But then in verse 24, there is a shift. And Jesus is telling those who have their ears attuned around the cross that day, there is going to be a shift. The darkness will not last. It says in verse 24, he has not, talking about God, he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not ignored it. He does not miss it. He does not just pay no attention to it. He has not hidden his face from them, but he has listened to his cry for help. In the darkness, when people feel forsaken, Jesus is saying, I've been there and I've faced it. And as he hangs on the cross and quotes this, he says, this is my song for this moment because I know he is with me and he is seeing me and hearing me. And in verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise. The last half a dozen verses of the psalm, there's a complete shift to praise and a declaration that people will proclaim the righteousness of God. And Jesus is saying on the cross, you can see the darkness and you can see the suffering, but I trust that something else is going to come out of this, this incredible reversal. In the darkness every night in Jerusalem, there were men walking around the walls. And with this I am done. Every night, these guys were called watchmen. And what they did was, as their name suggested, they would walk laps of the city walls every night and they would watch out for danger. They'd be watching the roads, the entrance to the city, watching the horizon to see if anyone was coming to attack the watchmen. And it says in the Psalms, again, Psalm 130, I mentioned it earlier, the watchman waits for the morning. Out of the depths I cry unto you, out of the darkness... And there's this instruction in the psalm to wait and keep waiting just like the watchman waits for the morning. And what the watchman saw every night in the fourth watch of the night, which was the darkest part of the night, a star appeared in the sky in the fourth watch of the night. And whenever the watchman saw that star, he knew that morning was coming, that his shift in the darkness was almost over. And the star actually wasn't a star at all. It was Venus. The darkest part of the night, Venus becomes visible and it is, it is bright. And the watchman would look for that star in the darkness. He would be continually looking to see when it would appear. Is the night going to end? And therefore they began to refer to Venus, to that star. They called it the morning star. Because it was the star that told them morning was coming. I started in Genesis first chapter and in Revelation the last chapter. With actually the last words that Jesus spoke before he closed out this book. And he says to, to his people, I am the bright morning star. In other words, you have seen me rise. And therefore you know that the night will end. The darkness will end because the morning star has arisen. Earlier in the same chapter of Revelation, talks about the future 
new heaven and the new earth and says there will be no more night. No more night. Do you know what? There could be darkness for your whole life. But because the morning star has arisen in the darkness, you know that light will come. And you may just say, oh, that's pie in the sky, thinking, just saying, oh, we're all, we're all going to heaven and there'll be no more night and no more darkness. The Bible doesn't actually say we're going to heaven. It says heaven's coming here. But that's another message. But you might just say this, this whole future hope of being with God is just, it's just Christians having this dreamy fairy tale. Well, I challenge you to take the risk. Blaise Pascal came up with a few things. He came up with a triangle called Pascal's Triangle. And he came up with a wager called Pascal's Wager. And he said to those who did not believe in God, he said to, to the atheist, if you do not believe in God and you are right, you don't gain anything. If you do not believe in God and you are wrong, you have lost everything. If you believe in God and you are wrong, you don't lose anything. But if you believe in God and you're right, you gain everything. I'm going to go through that again to make sure you get it. If you do not believe in God and you are right, you don't gain anything. If you do not believe in God and you're wrong, you've lost everything. Whereas if you believe in God and you're wrong, you haven't lost anything. You've lived well. But if you believe in God and you're right, you've gained everything. So if the darkness lasts our entire lifetime, and all we have is the morning star to cause us to believe that the sun will rise, that's enough. Stop running away from the places in our lives where God really wants to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, Lord, that you work in the darkness. And I pray, Father, you will just write that deeply upon our hearts. Some of us are in darkness right now, right in the thick of it. We are in the depths and we are crying out to you. Help us to trust that if we make our bed in the depths, you are there. Some of us are not in the darkness, but it will come. Lord, may this just provide a foundation that when it comes, we turn and we face it and we see you in it, Lord. Lord, I pray you'll take away the instinct that we have to run from the very things that you want to use to transform us and to transform this world and to build your church. And Lord, that in these difficult, difficult days, you would teach us and enable us to trust you completely. Amen.